ahead this morning and turn to Paul's epistle to Titus, chapter 3. Over the past uh, almost a month now, we've been looking at joy in Christ, our joy as Christians, where it comes from, where it rests, all those things. And we're going to dive into that again this morning, looking at grace. Now, when you look at Paul's emphasis to Titus here, the word for grace he uses comes from the Greek word charis which typically gets translated grace or favor or blessing or gift. Those things sound really nice, right? When we look at the tense of the word that he uses today, it's kerati. It's actually where we get our English word charity. So when we think of God's grace, it is his charity towards us. Now we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul says to Titus, he says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not by works, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. I'm just going to pray again real quick. Heavenly Father, I just pray this morning your word penetrate our hearts, that we understand it, Lord, that the word is read and spoken and understood and applied and that father god we take this with us as we leave today that you truly do pierce our very souls this morning with your word and that your fruit grow out of our lives from this point forward if if we've not been operating in this correctly up until this point and again we ask this for your glory and in accordance with your will amen The title of today's message is The Joy of Grace. Now we looked a few weeks back, we looked at how our joy rests in our hope in Christ's return. We looked at how our joy increases as as we grow in our salvation. And last week, Pastor Calvin brought the message and he talked about our joy in repentance. He did a really good job. Honestly, I mean, Calvin has really grown himself in his preaching ability. And it's not the power of Calvin that that brought the word, but the power of the word that I believe came forth. That's not to denigrate what he did, but he, he, he brought it. And today, if you're taking notes, the one thing I would like for you to take home with you this morning, the one thing that I hope you, you apply to your life, it is simply this. The joy of the Christian begins in the grace of God. I'll say that again. The joy of the Christian begins in the grace of God. 
Now, when you look through history and you look through all the, the church fathers and things of that nature, everybody who's come before us, you'll see countless quotes, uh, little word blurbs of, about grace and how awesome and powerful and how wonderful and how rich grace is. Guys like J.I. Packer who says, grace is what the New Testament is all about. It's quotes by Christendom and, and Augustine and Calvin and Martin Luther and all these but in the last 200 years, there's been one person who has impacted the doctrine of grace, I would say, more than anyone else. It's a guy by the name of John Newton. Now, you may not know who he is. There was a movie about him not that long ago, very uh, low budget. Uh, the big actor was one of the first actors to play Mr. Fantastic in a Marvel movie. That's the only reason I even know that movie exists, to be honest. But it's about John Newton. Now, Newton was born in 1725, but really his story begins in 1744 whenever he was drafted into the British Royal Navy. Now, it wasn't sailing that Newton hated. It was the life of a soldier. Newton constantly got in trouble because he was undisciplined and he was kind of a smart aleck and he just didn't really like the structured lifestyle of the military. In fact, he got in trouble many times for insubordination. And so when the opportunity came, he put in for a transfer to a merchant ship. And that, I'm really going to condense the story for you this morning. But he transferred to a merchant ship. And to be honest, his captain was probably ready to be rid of him anyway. So it was a good thing for everybody. A win, win, win. But what Newton didn't know was that ship was bound for America. It was a slave ship going down the west coast of Africa. Newton would never make it to the United States, at least not on this trip. He ended up partnering up, becoming buddies, I guess you could say, with a very wealthy merchant who happened to be on that ship. And he thought to himself, if I could pair up with this guy, he can mentor me, I can learn from him, and I can become wealthy like he's become wealthy if I just stick around this guy. Well, he did. And when this guy got off the boat and decided to stay in Africa and continue his business, which you can assume what his business was, Newton stayed with him. Unfortunately, John became very ill and, and through a bunch of different circumstances, John Newton himself would become enslaved to this man. In fact, he would write of that time that uh, he was, in effect, without the name, he was a captive but he was a slave himself. He was depressed to the lowest degree of human wretchedness. And even then, knowing how horrible his life was, John Newton persisted. Even though he was constantly hungry, constantly thirsty, basically wearing rags to the point he was so embarrassed when people came to visit his master, he would hide from them. The first opportunity he got, first opportunity he got his master basically sold him to go work on another merchant ship, another slave ship. And guess what? Even though he knew poverty like no one around him likely knew it, Newton didn't change. People around him didn't like him. The sailors thought he was too profane in his language. He used excessive profanity. He was lazy, they thought. They, they didn't like his work ethic. He was still insubordinate. And in spite of that, somehow he managed to work himself up to being his own captain of his own ship, a slave ship. 
Knowing the life he came from, he began to captain a ship that put more people in that type of lifestyle. And not only was he doing this, he was profiting off of it. He was making money off of it. And to make a long story short, he would meet his wife, Polly, and they'd get married. And still, that didn't change him. But at some point in his life, he had an encounter with Jesus Christ, and he submitted to the grace of God. And that is when he began to pin the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You understand only a wretch would live in slavery and then at the first opportunity profit off of slavery. A horrible man he was, but an encounter with Christ changed him. Now I have up here, this book is 212 years old. Please do not touch it, okay? It will fall apart. You can touch it, it's okay. And in this book, this is uh, volume two of a six-volume set of the complete works of John Newton. He died in 1807. This was published in 1808, or sorry, 1810, and they compiled the entire thing together. And this is one of the, the first editions of that. And in this book, towards the back, there's a sermon that he wrote. And it's titled, The Sovereignty of Divine Grace Asserted and Illustrated. If you thought Pastor Jeff had long sermon titles, boy, would you have liked to have lived back then, right? And he only preaches from one very short verse. It's from a prayer of Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty six. He says, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And in the book, it's about 11 pages of notes just about that one verse and how it relates and how the message of that prayer, how it all unifies and harmonizes with Scripture. What was pleasing in God's sight that God had hidden the things of Christ from the so-called wise and intelligent and he'd refu- he had revealed... Th- these things of Christ to those Christ refers to as infants. And in that message, John Newton concludes by saying this, if you are most unworthy of mercy and destitute of every plea, should you not be glad to hear that the Lord who does not expect worthiness in those whom he saves, but that he himself has provided the only plea which he will accept and a plea which cannot be overruled, the righteousness and mediation of his well-beloved son. In other words, if you think you are undeserving of God's grace, you're right, but understand, it does not depend on your worthiness. It doesn't depend on my worthiness. It depends on the worthiness of Christ alone. And through him, we receive the grace of God and we are saved. Only through Christ. That's why I say the joy of the Christian begins in the grace of God. 
Now we look at our text this morning, verses 1 and 2, Titus 3. It says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. Now, my research, after I put all my notes together, sometimes I'll, I'll see how other people have preached about a message or, or something. Maybe they've got a good point. I'd like to plagiarize. <clears throat> and No, I'm kidding. Uh, I usually credit my sources. But it's one pastor, his title of his message from this exact text was The Christian's Responsibility to the Pagan World. Well, I think that's fair. That's a decent title. But if we really read the text, what we understand is this wasn't about the whole church's responsibility, but Titus's responsibility to remind them of that. From there, the young pastor Titus was to equip the saints. That's what the pastor does, according to Ephesians 4.12. He was to instruct them in how they were to interact and conduct themselves within the pagan world. And specifically, he begins by talking about the government. He was to remind them, Titus, was to remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities. Now that word subject, it comes from the Greek word hypotastasthai, and it means to be subordinate to them, to follow their laws. The Bible has much to say concerning how we interact with a secular, non-Christian government. We'd be wise to understand what it means and what it's actually saying. Romans 13, it begins, Paul tells the church of Rome, every person is to be in subjection, same word, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. In other words, by submitting to the governing authorities, in a sense, the Christian is submitting to God who has established those authorities who's placed people in their position of power. But Paul goes on, he says, For rulers are not a cause for fear, for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of their authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword in vain. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. By saying this, basically what Paul is doing is he's repeating something he said in Romans twelve twenty one: If you always do right, you'll never go wrong. Right? That's not exactly what he said. He said, do good and, and not evil, but... He's saying that if you're doing what is ethical, if you're doing what is good, then you have no reason to fear a government whose laws reward what is good. That's why Paul goes on in Romans 13, he says, this is why we pay our taxes, because we want to honor those who use their governing station to protect us as citizens, who guard over us as citizens. Not all governing authorities did this, and nobody knew that better than the first century Christian. Because if you remember, it was the government who allowed Christ to be crucified. It was the government who in, uh, sorry, captured, ensnared, and caught the, the apostles and put them to death. It was the government who ripped people from their homes if they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar and worship Caesar as God. It was the government who fed Christians to the wild beasts. It was the emperor himself, Nero, who would light Christians on fire for, as torches for his garden parties in Rome. 
But as long as what the government is doing is in alignment with God's law, and so far as it concerns us, Peter says as well, be subject for the sake of the Lord to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. For such is the will of God that by doing good, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free people and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but you it as slaves of God. Honor people, love the brethren, fear God, honor the king. Now there does come a time inevitably in human history when the government oversteps and they begin to infringe upon the commands of God and it's in those times that we stand with Peter and John and the rest of the apostles and we proclaim as they did in Acts 5:29, we must obey God rather than men. Another example of this, again, I would point to is John Newton. Newton himself was instrumental in the abolishment of slavery in Britain. Were it not for a Christian interjecting himself into the politics of his day, slavery might have continued much longer. In the United States, were it not for Christians who understood the Bible and saw its abuse and how it was being misused, Slavery might have continued in the United States for much longer. Now, for myself, many of you know this, I don't enjoy dabbling in politics. I, I try to stay in my lane. But many times we see the government begins to infringe upon the pulpit. And it comes, there comes a time where the church, where the pulpit has to push back. Much of the New Testament, by the way, was written by men who understood this. People who had resisted the government. Church history is littered with bodies and and soaked in the blood of men and women who would resist the government, who would want them to obey their laws first over God's laws. Ultimately, what we conclude is this. We might say the Christian submission to authority is to be done as a part of the Christian testimony. That we follow what is good because we serve one who was and is good incarnate. And we understand Paul is making this very clear to Titus because he says this one thing at the very end of verse 1, to be ready for every good work. We are to be ready to do the good work, not government mandated or government ordered, ordered evil. After everything is said and done, we are told to do what is good. In fact, Paul goes on and he tells Titus to tell them to slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness. By slandering others, what a believer does is ruins their own reputation because they become a gossip. We talked about this a few, about a month and a half ago. Peter addresses this also in 1 Peter 3.16, and I'll summarize that. He basically says, you as a Christian should live your life in such a way that when someone comes along and tries to slander you, it is to their shame because the things they are accusing you of are so unthinkable in your life, and people have seen your life and know that if they were to accuse you of something immoral, there's no possible way the person making the accusation, the slanderer, is a liar. The Christian is to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating gentleness. As Paul says elsewhere, for against such things there is no law. Who would really be angry if you were kind? Who would be upset if you were non-combative, if you were not self-serving, but loving and loving others? Only a malicious, divisive person could truly be angry over such things. And such a person does not have the joy of Christ in their life because they've not experienced the grace of God in their life. 
A Christian demonstrates godly virtue to everyone they encounter. Jesus makes this very clear. Matthew 5, he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's not always easy to let our light shine. It's not always easy to pay that grace forward and love others from a place of being loved ourselves. Many of you know I was on vacation last week, and, and Jennifer can corroborate this story just so you're aware. Uh, we went to Jamestown to, to church, and after the service, Jennifer says, we got to get gas. And I said, oh, can we not get gas somewhere else? And she said, nope, I'm on empty. We need to get gas. I said, okay. So I get out as because I'm such a gentle, loving husband. Uh, no, actually, I didn't really want to. It was cold. But I got out to pump gas. And I used my phone to pay for the, uh, for the gas. You might think it's the mark of the beast, whatever. It was convenient. And again, it was cold. So I paid for the gas. I put the pump in. I squeezed the handle. And seven cents later, it stops. So I did what every rational thinking man would do. I stood there and squeezed the pump a bunch. Click, clack, click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. Nothing. A message comes across the screen. This pump has been stopped. No kidding. And I'm inside. It's cold. I didn't want to pump gas anyway. And I'm, now I'm getting mad. Because... I have a short fuse sometimes. Comes with the red hair probably, right? And so I go inside and I'm just, I'm trying really hard just to be, hmm, I'm in a good mood, Lord. I just went to church. (sighs) Okay, I can do this. And there's a long line, of course. About four or five people. We'll say two or three. I'm probably exaggerating because now I'm getting worked up about it, but... We'll say two or three people. The line quickly begins to fade. And they get to the counter. And honestly, I said, excuse me, ma'am, but the pump outside is stopped. And she begins to tear into me. Well, I know. Because you just pulled up and started getting gas. I said, well, I paid for it. Yeah, but somebody else prepaid on that pump. Now, I don't know if you've ever gotten gas before, church. But if you prepay on a pump... You typically park at the pump first so nobody else comes up to get gas. What kind of sick freak does the other thing? So I said, ma'am, I'm sorry, nobody was parked there. Yeah, I don't know where they went. Okay, Uh, and guys, I'm serious. My blood is boiling and I'm keeping my composure. This is a brag moment, okay? I I said, Okay, well, how do we fix this? Uh, do you just want me to move to another, com- uh, another pump? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I'm the idiot. I'm sorry. I said, okay, that's fine. So I go back out. I get in the car. I tell Jennifer, she said we can go to another pump, but we're going to go to a totally different pump at a different gas station. I'm not dealing with this again. And she goes, Jennifer, without missing a beat, you left the pump in the car. You got to get back out. Now, in my mind, I hear thump, thump, thump. I hear the war drums, right? But I just left church, and in my heart, I'm hearing grace, grace, Jeff, grace, grace. And thankfully, in that case, grace won out, right? But it's not always easy. It definitely wasn't easy in that moment, I can tell you that. 
But Paul goes on, he says, For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. Now something gets lost in the translation from the Koine Greek to the modern English here. But what Paul is doing, if you, if you study the Greek, you'll see this, you might pick up on it. He's actually singing or giving us poetry of some kind. Possibly you could even say this is first century rap music. And DJ Saul of Tarsus is at the table. When he says, we ourselves, the word disobedient, enslaved, various, spending our life, hating. All of these words rhyme in the Greek. It's kind of fascinating, kind of cool. What's that mean then? There's got to be a purpose behind that. Surely Paul just didn't drop a beat and go off like, you know, Eminem or something. They all rhyme, and what it tells us is that truly what is happening is this is probably a common saying in the early church. It's either a hymn or some sort of nursery rhyme that they had invented or would tell themselves to remind the Christian of the sort of life they were saved from, the, that what they were saved out of. The operative word in verse 3 is the word were. We also once were this way. We are no longer to be this way. This is nothing new in the writings of the Apostle Paul, by the way. He often lists things out. He regularly does. And when he does this referring to the past life of sin, he often shows us that grace takes us somewhere else. In fact, if you were here Wednesday night, we talked quite a bit about this. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. In 1 Corinthians 6, he does the same thing. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And here to Titus, Paul, genius that he is, he begins to put it to a cadence, to a rhythm, to a rhyme, so that they are easily reminded and remember that once they were enslaved to sin, but they have been set free. As the psalmist says, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. You see, the believer's sins are forgiven and forgotten, but our testimony is a reminder of the deliverance we experience from our sins by God's grace. Briefly, we may go back and examine the past we may look back because the past is a nice place to visit, but nobody should want to live there anymore. Paul says we were all once foolish. The Greek word is anoyatos. anoyatos. Sorry, I butchered that this morning. Basically, it means we're unintelligent. We're ignorant. We did not know the truth. 
Either we were lacking in our education, needing someone to explain it to us, or we were deceived or we lacked belief entirely. Paul uses the same word in Galatians 3 when addressing the church who had been deceived. He said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Because of this, he says, we were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. And this draws us back to something Paul had warned the church of earlier in the letter when he encouraged the older, uh, more mature Christian women to not be enslaved to too much wine. And the men were also to be temperate in their behaviors. This is a contrast that Paul is setting for us. In essence, he's saying if you're under the grace of God, you are growing in the grace of God, growing in your salvation, and the way we were no longer has a hold over who we are. We were like that, but we're no longer to be that way. Our lives are no longer filled with malice and envy, despising, hating each other. This was the way of life for those on the Isle of Crete, by the way, where Titus had been left It was a pagan island. It was a place where one of their own prophets, Paul quotes them earlier in in the letter. He says, one of their own prophets says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. It's just who they are. Weren't we all like that at one point? We were all filled with maliciousness, envy, despising, even possibly hating one another. You know, being angry, being upset with someone one time, losing your cool at a gas station attendant, which did not happen. Reinforce that. Did not happen. It doesn't mean you're no longer saved. But if it's a lifestyle or a habit, then you have a problem. And it's not just an anger problem. It's a sin problem. Paul says that if we are in Christ, that should be a past tense issue, not something we continue in on purpose, not something we practice. And I want to pause here for a moment and simply say this. If you are struggling with anger, there is room for you at the foot of the cross. You do not have to continue in that. You do not have to carry a grudge. You do not have to sip the poison of bitterness and wait for the other person to fall. Letting go of hurt, letting go of anger, letting go of frustration, letting all of that baggage drop is one of the most liberating, most freeing things offered in God's grace. We are to slander no one. We're to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating gentleness. But when we are filled with anger and consistent hatred and bitterness, pursuing our own lusts, our own pleasures, it hinders that lifestyle. It makes it almost impossible. It's to be who we were, not who we are. And if you're wrestling with these things, you should just know this. There is grace in Christ Jesus. There is grace at the foot of the cross. And it is there where our joy truly begins. Now we look at verses 4 and 5. It says, But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. But can be a very powerful word. Especially when it's followed by these three letters. G-O-D. But God. I was this way, but God did this. I was headed down this path, but God took me this direction. I used to do these things, but now God saved me and I do these things. My marriage was this way, but now we're this way. 
My kids were this way, but now they're this way because God. God intervened. It leads to a complete shift in something that's been happening. And if you're in Christ, you truly understand this. If you have yielded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, if you have surrendered to the grace of God, your life has at least begun to shift. When the kindness and the affection, some translations take that and they say when the kindness or the goodness of God and his love for mankind, this kindness and affection, it speaks of God's grace. It shouts of God's grace. There's a Latin phrase, we understand it. It explains this grace of God, the saving grace. It's sola gratia. And it comes from the Reformation, yes, when Christians began to read the Bible and and begin to establish their own doctrinal beliefs after reading it for themselves, and they began to understand there is nothing that I can add to my salvation. It is God's free gift offered to me. It is his grace alone that saves me, not because I'm special, not because I'm something so great, but because he is so great. God is good. God is love. God lavishes his grace upon us out of his abundant kindness and affection for his creation. We see this very clearly in Paul's other writings, Romans 2, 4. Do you think it lightly? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Ephesians 2, 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Peter also chimes in. He says, like newborn babies long for pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And of course, we know God's love all too well. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have eternal life. John three sixteen, one of the most popular Bible verses ever right? Why? Because it's the gospel. It speaks to us of God's love and compassion. Paul summarizes it in Titus 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. First John, same guy who wrote John the gospel, he talks quite a bit about God's love. First John 4 verses 8 through 11, he says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. His kindness, his love, his compassion, his grace is made evident in the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who stepped out of heaven and into a manger, and we celebrate that this month. And from the manger, he went to a cross that the atoning work of God for our salvation might be made complete in Christ's resurrection from the dead. You see, God has always shown grace and compassion and love to his creation. In the Garden of Eden, mankind was told to follow one rule, one simple rule. This creature was not to feast upon the forbidden fruit. And this thing made from the dust and the mud of the earth, he would not obey. 
And some say God's punishment was too harsh, his wrath too vicious even, to which we have to say the created thing snubbed its nose at its creator and rebelled, and after having been warned it would end in death, still chose rebellion. And yet God in his love spared the man and his wife and in that moment shed blood. Genesis tells us in Genesis 3.21, Then Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. You understand that in that moment a precedent was set that the blood of an animal was to be shed in order to cover the shame and sin of mankind. And it is God who is the one who sheds it. Many years later, thousands of years later, the sin of mankind has grown darker and deeper and they nail a man to a tree and the only thing that can spare humanity from the eternal shame and consequences of their sin is the blood of something, someone far greater than any animal and it is again God who sheds it. His own blood as an atonement for our sins. And we see the need evermore for his grace and his kindness and his love. The love and affection of our Savior appeared. It appeared in Christ and it appeared as Christ. He saved us. Not by our works, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. This grace is the beginning point of our salvation, and it is God who gives it to us freely. So, uh, Psalm 3, 8 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Psalm 62. Surely my soul waits in silence for God. From him is my salvation. And heaven sings. We saw this a while back. In Revelation 17, they cry out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise God. It's according to his mercy. Mercy is the Greek word elios, and it means he looks upon us with compassion. He looks upon us in pity. You see, God spares us because he knows us and he looks upon his child as a parent who sees their own child, their own son, their own daughter covered in filth and he says, I love them anyway and I'm going to take them and I'm going to make them clean through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And baptism symbolizes this internal cleansing of sin. Baptism openly as a declaration to everyone who will see it or hear about it that you have been made clean by the Heavenly Father. You're saying, I've been renewed. It's no longer the old me that lives, but a new creation in Christ Jesus through the cleansing of his Holy Spirit. Paul continues in verses 6 and 7, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Verse 6 is one of those transitional verses. You know, whom is speaking of the Holy Spirit poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. This points us back to verse 4. Verse 4 tells us God is our Savior. Here we're told Jesus is our Savior. It's because Jesus is God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John makes it very clear when he says the word word, the Greek is logos, he's referring, <clears throat> he's referring to a person. He continues, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father full of 
grace. Full of grace and truth. So that having been justified by his grace, justified is, it means that he has declared us righteous. He has made us right. How does he do that? By pouring out his Holy Spirit upon us through Christ our Savior. He pours it out richly. He pours it out abundantly and completely overflowing, more than we could ever need. He gives us as he purifies our souls. You see, it's by his grace and his grace alone we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. While the apostles would sometimes write of themselves they were slaves of Christ, the Greek word being doulos often gets translated servant or bondservant. Paul clarifies that we also were slaves. Sin was our master. But we've exchanged that master for a better master, for Christ. And he says this, So also while we were children, we were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Through the son, through his grace, through his love, we become heirs of his kingdom. Galatians 4, 7 says, Therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. Just like John Newton, no longer a slave, set free by God's grace, why then would we ever want to return to a life of slavery or a life in close proximity to that slavery, benefiting from that slavery? Instead, we should live in the joy of his abundant grace. And it's in his grace where our joy begins. We read in verse 8, it says, This is truly, uh, sorry, this is a trustworthy saying, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. When Paul says this is a trustworthy saying, he only ever says that, by the way, in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. He says it about five different times. And usually when he says this, he's either wrapping up a thought, which is what he's doing in our text, or he's beginning to say something vitally important. And he wants the reader, he wants the pastor, Timothy or Titus, he wants them to pay attention and make sure it is something they repeat often and, and powerfully to their people. And this is what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost. That's the trustworthy saying that the Timothy should catch. Speaking of John Newton, it's said that when he grew old and he would begin to preach, he, would, he was losing his mental facilities, okay? He, he would just be preaching about something and just kind of trail off. And he'd catch himself and he'd realize and he'd walk back to his, his lectern and, and he'd embrace it and he'd just look down and there upon his lectern he'd have written on a note in the King James, 1 Timothy 1.15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You see, Newton knew what he was. But he also knew who God made him to be. And it was from that point he could continue on in his message. It was an anchor for him, and it should be an anchor for us. It is a trustworthy saying. It is the gospel expedited. It is the grace of God in one sentence. Christ Jesus came to save sinners, and I'm the worst one I know. I'm a sinner, and yet he came and he, he saved me. 
Here with the trustworthy statement in our text, Paul is wrapping up his thought concerning grace, what God has done in salvation, and it's offered freely to all. And he continues, he wants Titus to speak confidently about these things. Now, speaking in confidence, it means to speak insistently or persistently here. He's stressing, he wants Titus to affirm this truth. He wants to remind them. What's the, what, when someone reminds you of something, husbands don't raise your hand, but when someone reminds you of something, Something, they often do it more than once, right? You smart men, smart men. They're all pretending to be asleep right now. Remind them, speak confidently about these things. Make sure they understand the grace of God. It's the second time, actually, he's told Titus specifically to do this. In Titus 2.15, he says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These things he's talking about in chapter 2, it was simply just telling the church to live as mature Christians, those who are growing in their faith, the older men and women, the younger men and, and slaves. And the whole church was to conduct themselves in the way that Paul had been talking about in chapter 2. Titus was to speak with confidence about that. And he's also to talk with confidence here about the grace of God. This confidence is more than just some flimsy presentational act, by the way, or some public speaking method. It was based in the foundation from which Titus would speak. In our preaching class, we wrapped up last month, we, we talked about presentation and speaking with confidence. And it's not some bravado thing that you do. It's the key for the preacher, at least as I understand it, and as I taught it to Pastor Calvin, the key is for the preacher to speak with confidence means that he is prepared effectively. He knows what he's talking about. He studied to show himself as one approved. I'm not going to dare speak with confidence about things I don't know about. I'm not going to come up when I might do this jokingly because it is humorous to watch me try, but I'm not going to come up and try to tell you how to play the piano. I'd say, hey, go talk to Patty Well. She actually knows what she's talking about. I would be trying to play chopsticks, and I can't even keep a regular beat with that. I'm not going to go and tell people how to raise cattle. I'll say, go talk to Cole Wiltsey or Joel Wiltsey. They've done that most of their lives. I don't know what I'm talking about. The preacher speaks with confidence about what he knows, and the Word of God should be what he knows. It's in fact, I believe it's all he really should focus on. It's his primary focus. It's where his life is found. It's where his life is based. And it's something you should, if, if a preacher expects that out of his congregation, he should model it for himself. Just like Paul told Timothy, preach the word. The word preach literally means to always be preaching. It's part of who the preacher, the pastor is. It's the message of the cross, the gospel, the scriptures are always at his fingertips and in, within his grasp in order for it to be truly effective, rooted in the word, speaking by the spirit, declaring the word of God in such a way it's pointing others towards Christ. That's what he's telling Titus to do here. Paul wants Titus to be an effective preacher to the Cretans, so he wants Titus to understand the importance of grace, the transformative power of grace in order for Titus to effectively, confidently stress and insist on the message of grace. So that those who do believe it, those who believe in God for their salvation, so they will be intent to lead in good works. The idea of good works is also consistent in Titus. In fact, Paul mentions it in what we would call each chapter. 
Chapter 1, he says, They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and unfit for any good work. He's talking about uh, non-believers. In chapter 2, he says, Jesus gave himself up for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And here the circle is complete and simple. Works don't save us, but they are evidence of us having been saved. You do not have to love others. You don't have to be kind. You don't have to be gentle. You don't have to be peaceable or considerate, refusing to slander. But when you're in Christ, you should want those things. It should be a part of who you are. Like John said in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Paul says the Ephesians, instead, of, instead be kind to one another, tenderhearted, graciously forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also graciously has forgiven you. Now, if you've ever read the Lord's Prayer or studied the Lord's Prayer, you know Jesus says something kind of interesting. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive in our debtors. And just a couple verses later, he says, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And sometimes we read that and we say, that sounds like a work. That if I want forgiveness, I need to go and make sure I forgive other people first. But if we understand that within the context of Scripture, we understand what Jesus is truly saying is that you have been forgiven, but forgiven. But if you refuse to let go of that bitterness, if you refuse to let go of that anger, that resentment that you're hanging on to, that unforgiveness, if you refuse to let that go, God will still forgive you, but you are not going to live in the full freedom of that forgiveness. You're going to be bogged down and weighed down and your race that you're running is going to be that much slower. One of the most powerful good works is that which flows from forgiveness received into forgiveness of others. Grace received means grace given. His kindness, his love, his gentleness becomes a work that he does in us and through us when we have received his kindness his love, and his gentleness. And we have, like Pastor Calvin talked about last week, when we have repented, we've turned from our sins, and we are now wrapped in his grace and mercy, Paul concludes, these things are good and profitable for men. Paul's making a case for what is good for the Christian, what is worth having. Because in the following passages, he's going to talk about disputes and foolish controversies and conflicts, and we're not sure exactly what that was all based on. Paul said earlier, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, but they needed to be silenced. And, and yet while they're silent, Paul wants Titus to preach consistently and insistently the message of grace. That when we turn from our sins and we follow Jesus, there is a life full of goodness and grace waiting on us. As someone once said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And when we make the move to be submitted to him, subordinate to him, subjective to him, we step into a grace that is full of joy. A joy that those outside of Christianity could not understand unless they were themselves to submit to him. You see, the true joy of the Christian begins in the grace of God. The grace we are under through Christ Jesus, our Savior. I'm going to move to close. Before I do, I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. And, and we're going to, I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We're going to sing. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We're going to worship together. You know, we read stories about others who've been saved, their horrible lives, their, their testimonies, what monsters they'd been, and yet somehow they claim to have found grace at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's said that Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, monster that he was, while he was in prison became a believer in Christ. Now if you hear that or you hear a story of someone like John Newton and you say, I don't see how God could possibly save such a person if you even still see them as a person at all. Maybe you don't believe there's anything worth saving, but that would just simply imply you underestimate the vastness of the love of God and the grace of God Almighty. And we vastly underestimate the levels of depravity within our own heart. And yet as a Christian, we can have joy, true joy, because of his grace. The joy of the Christian begins in the grace of God. Now maybe you're here and you don't know that joy because you don't know that grace. That's okay, we've all been there. Maybe you're watching online and you're saying, or you're listening to the podcast or whatever, and you're saying, I don't know that joy, I don't know that grace, but I need it, I want that. There is room at the foot of the cross. So take the time this morning. We're going to have communion as well. We don't have, uh, we have what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member or anything like that if you want to participate. We just ask that you be a Christian. And I would ask as, as we worship, as we sing, come freely, take the, the bread and the juice wherever you're sitting and, and take it on your own with your spouse, if you're sitting with your spouse, with your family or with a friend, whatever you'd like to do. But if you're here and you're saying, I don't have that grace, I don't know what that's about, and you'd like some prayer, then I would ask you to find your way to the front. Our prayer team would be happy to pray with you. And we're going to sing and we're going to dismiss, but I would plead with you, do not leave here without knowing the fullness of God's grace. Don't leave here without asking him to change your heart and to give you that joy. And so, Father God, I pray that whatever sin lies dormant or lies within our hearts, our minds, whatever it may be that needs to be exposed to us, brought to light, I pray this morning you do that, that we might repent and know a greater joy in your grace today. Father, as we take communion, I pray you are glorified and you draw us closer to you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.